0: Good to see you all this morning. I want to welcome you to Redemption Hill Church. And if I've not gotten a chance to meet you or personally greet you, I want to say hello. My name is J.D. Summers. I serve as pastor here. And I also want to say hello this morning to all those who are watching at home. Uh, you were missed. You were loved. And if you're not uh, here in the building this morning, I just want to sh- tell you a little bit about what everybody else is seeing. Um, over the last two weeks, there's been a lot of exciting things happening with the building. Uh, you can't see it from the live screen, the, the live stream view, but... Uh, There's new windows now in our sanctuary. We have a new front door. Uh, The bathrooms are uh, halfway done, being tiled and grouted. There's a lot of painting that has happened this week. And this coming week, we're going to be having carpet that's coming in for the platform. um, And hopefully, by the end of the week, even get started on carpeting the first floor. So we're making progress. There's a lot that's happening. Um, And I want to say a huge thank you to all of those who have been helping with that. a lot of this work has been contracted out, but there's been steady, consistent work that's been done by people here in this church, and you guys know who you are. You've done drywall. You've done renovations. A lot of you have, have done a lot of work outside as far as landscaping. Uh, many of you have been painting and doing other such things, so thank you for everything you've been doing, um, and by the way, if you have experience uh, painting, doing electrical, doing tile... <laughs> Or if you just like tearing things out and cleaning things up, let me know because there is much opportunity for you to join us and helping out here. There's still a lot to be done. Um, but I also just want to say this. I love it that this church has not been put off at all by the prospect of meeting in the middle of a construction zone. Um, we ended up starting to have church here in this building, um, honestly, sooner than we anticipated Uh, because of several circumstances. And you all have just had a great attitude about that. You've been patient, you've been understanding, and just thankful to be here. And I think that's really a good thing, um, because this building is a lot like the people who are sitting in it this morning. Uh, We are all works in progress, and hopefully week by week we see steps towards the final product But if we're honest, we all have some things that need fixed up. We all have messes that need dealt with. We all have things that are under construction. And praise God, he is a gracious savior who is in the business of remodeling. He's remodeling sinners like us to increasingly make us more and more like his son, Jesus Christ. So it's fitting that we meet here today in the middle of a construction zone um, with fresh paint and raw subflooring and other such things. Because we're a people who are in progress. And the primary tools that God uses to do this renovation work in us is his spirit and his word. And that's why we've gathered here this, here this morning to listen to his spirit, to engage with his words. I'm going to ask you to pray with me before we open the scriptures. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this place, this building where we can gather. And I thank you for the people that you have brought together to make up this church. We know that a, a church is is more than a building it is the life of the body it's the people who make up the family of God and so God we ask for your ongoing work in us we pray that you'd renew our minds today Lord there's thoughts that come from the world there's thoughts that come from our flesh there's so many competing ideas and values and desires that war against the spirit within us and we need your help we need you to renew our mind as we come into contact with your truth in the scriptures. God, we pray that you'd refocus our hearts. There are many different directions that even my heart's been pulled already this morning. And Lord, we need you to to fix our hearts and our eyes on Jesus today. That we would desire you as we ought. That we would love you as we ought. That we would be rightly humbled and thankful. So Lord, refocus our hearts today. And I pray that as we worship, as we listen to your word, as we fellowship, and even for those who are watching from home, I pray that today, as we are reminded of the central truth of your gospel, that you would strengthen the bond of unity in this church, a unity that comes to us through Christ. Lord, we ask for all of this with faith, because we believe that this is your will. And so we ask you to do it for the sake of your name and your glory and for our good and our joy. Amen. I'm going to invite you this morning to open your Bibles to John chapter 3. Two weeks ago, uh, you may remember, we asked the question uh, in the message that day, why did Jesus come? And we saw that week that Jesus had to come. Uh, Jesus was the only one who could pass the test. He's the only one who could atone for sin. Jesus is the only one who could defeat death and the only one who could reign in righteousness as God's king, over his kingdom. So the coming of Jesus is essential. God's plan of redemption, his plan to establish his kingdom, it all hinges upon the coming of Jesus. That's why Christmas matters. But I want to return to that question this morning because there's more to that answer. When we ask why did Jesus come, it's about more than even the logistics of redemption. We need to look deeper. We need to look into The very heart of God. I want you to look with me this morning at a familiar text, John chapter 3 and verse 16. Sometimes we cover like two chapters of Exodus, you know, on a Sunday morning. Today we're just going to take one verse. And the text is this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The central truth we need to understand this morning is this, that the coming of Jesus into the world was the supreme act of love. When we think about Christmas, when we consider the incarnation, the God who takes on flesh, we need to recognize this truth, that Jesus Christ coming into the world, the Son of God coming here, where sinners like us live, was the supreme act of love. Now that word love means a lot of different things to different people these days. Our culture has a very distorted view of love, a twisted understanding of what love actually means. So as we come to this text, we have to keep in mind that that God does not abide by our definition of love or really anybody's definition of love because there is no standard outside of himself by which God is to be measured. No, God is the great I am. He is the self-existent, transcendent God. This same author, John, writes in his first epistle that God is love. He is the definition. So what God does, who God is, sets the bar and tells us what love is. And I point that out because this verse, John chapter 3, verse 16, is so familiar that we're in danger of sort of glossing over it. We're in danger of reading so quickly because before our eyes even see the next words on the page, our brain already knows where it's going. So when we come to this text, I want us to go slowly, to look carefully. And we need to come to this text not with assumptions of what we think love is, but with a teachable heart. With a desire to see and a desire to learn. Not just so that we can rightly understand love, as important as that is. No, so that we can rightly understand God. The God who is love and the God who loves us. So what I want to do in our time together today is look carefully at this profound and this famous statement that is found in John's gospel. And I want to consider what the coming of Christ tells us about the love of God. I'm going to offer you three observations this morning on God's love that is shown to us in the coming of Jesus. And the first is this. God's love is seen in his divine initiative. Love is seen in God's divine initiative. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave. The subject of these verbs, the one performing the actions in this phrase, is God. He's the one who moves. He's the one who initiates. His love takes action. And this little word, so, in this text is important. And it's not speaking of God's love primarily here as a motive. This phrase is not saying that God loved the world so much that he did these things. Although that is true. What this verse is saying is that God loved the world in this way. Love here is not merely the motive for God's actions. Love is defined by the actions. God loved the world in this way, in this manner. Here is how God loved the world that he gave. You know, Christmas time is a time of great nostalgia for many of us. There's a lot of sentiments and warm feelings and things like that, and that's all great. But it is important that we not reduce the love of God to a mere sentiment. No, the coming of Jesus, his birth, his life, his saving work on the cross, those are not feelings, although they are done with great feeling. No, those are actions, actions that spring from the heart of God, actions that manifest his love for us, and they do so by taking initiative. We often think of God's love for us as a response to our need. We are people who need God's love. Apart from what God does in sending his son, we cannot be saved. But God's love for you, Christian, actually precedes your need. You see, God's love is not rooted in us. God's love is rooted in himself, in his character. You see, God created all things and he called it very good. Basically, he liked what he made. He said it's very good. It pleased him. That means he values it. Mankind, the pinnacle of his creation, is created in his very image and is therefore greatly valuable to him. And even beyond this general love for creation, even beyond God's general love for mankind as a whole, is his special love for his children. And scripture teaches us that this love for his children originated in eternity past, before we existed. Before we had any needs, before we could even receive His love. And that love existed of God's own will and good pleasure. God's love for us, those who believe, it existed long before we had any love for Him. Therefore, this love that God has for us is not a fulfillment of duty or a fulfillment of obligation, it is a willing and unconstrained expression of His heart. He loves us and He has since before time began. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Listen, Christian, God loves you because he willingly chooses to do so. He took the initiative to set his love upon you. God's love doesn't just start in eternity past. It's also, as we read the scriptures, it is communicated to us in the promises. As you go through the, the Old Testament, this love is expressed. You see, because of God's, uh, God's knowledge of, of what we needed to hear, we sinned, we fell, it'd be easy to lose all hope. God in His grace communicated His love. He made promises to people like us who were destined for death and judgment because of sin. Even in God's immediate pronouncement of the curse, that, that, that man would have to, to work and toil with pain and labor, that there would be death, that there would be conflict, that there would be pain in childbirth, even amidst all this curse. There was a promise given, a promise that would take shape and come into clearer focus as it unfolded throughout the Old Testament. Promises of hope, promises of rescue, promises of restoration. And these promises communicate to God's people his love for them, a love that originated in eternity past. The promise was that someone was coming who would crush the head of the serpent. That blessing through Abraham was coming for the nations. That there was a suffering servant on his way who would make atonement. That there was a coming prophet greater than Moses, a priest after the order of Melchizedek, a king from the line of David. And these promises informed God's people throughout the ages of what he planned to do. And they communicated to them his love, assuring them that God saw their need and he had not abandoned them and he would provide Redemption. This love existed in eternity past, was communicated through the promises, and it culminates in the sending of Jesus. Galatians chapter 4 verse 4 says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. When Jesus Christ was born, love had come. To Earth, 1 John 4.9 says, In this the love of God was made mani- manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. This is the expression of God's love. It culminates in the coming of Jesus. Jesus is love incarnate, a concrete, tangible, living, breathing, bleeding, dying expression of God's love for us. But think about this the coming of Jesus. Why does Jesus come? It's not upon request. No, we didn't ask God to send Jesus. We didn't talk God into it. We didn't negotiate with God and twist his arm and bargain with him. We didn't even ask him at all. We didn't come up with the idea. God did. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Listen, this love that God has for us is a love that takes initiative. Unprompted by us, but overflowing from the heart of God, the God who is love. For God so loved the world that He gave. Aren't you glad that God's love takes initiative? I know I am. I'm glad that God loved me before I even knew that he existed. I'm glad that it wasn't up to us to take the first steps towards God, aren't you? God takes initiative in salvation. He chooses to love us and he takes the action to send his son. Love takes initiative. God so loved the world That he gave, but notice what he gave. He gave his only son. There's a second observation on God's love. God's love is seen in his sacrifice. He gave his only son. In order for us to really grasp this love, this sacrifice, the deep cost of what God has done for us, we really have to peer into the mysterious glory of the very Trinity itself. Scripture teaches us that there is one God. This God is holy, this God is transcendent, and He has eternally existed in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And there is a perfect and eternal relationship within the Godhead, between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And this perfect fellowship is what was put on the table in order to secure our salvation. This unique relationship The relationship the Father has with the Son is unlike anything else. He is God's only Son. And this mysterious and profound reality within the Trinity, in the coming of Jesus, it it touches humanity and eventually the cross. The Father gave His only Son. And the Son, as we know, will not only set aside His glory with the Father, but will lay down and give His very life. This is a sacrificial love. This sacrifice is hinted at in the verses leading up to verse 16. Look back in verse 14. Jesus tells Nicodemus in this discourse, he says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus, God's only Son, would be lifted up on a cross. He would be nailed to two pieces of wood. He would bleed and he would gasp for air as he was suspended between earth and sky, hanging between God and man. And this is why Jesus came. This is why he took on flesh and became a man, so that he could be lifted up and die. Jesus was born as a baby. He became one of us so that he could have nerve endings to feel the pain of the cross. He had a cardiovascular system so that he could bleed for us. He had joints and tendons that that were designed to support his weight as he hung on Roman spikes driven into the cross. He had lungs that could struggle for air. As he fought to ward off the asphyxiation that threatened to snuff out his life, as he was stretched across the crossbeam. But even worse than the physical suffering of being lifted up in the cross was the spiritual agony that Jesus would endure. Not only was he forsaken by his friends, abandoned by those he invested his life in. On the cross, the Father's wrath was poured out on him. Jesus. Came to drink the cup. To take our share of hell. To hang in our place. This is what Jesus came to do. And this is why he was given. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Just as the only hope for healing in the wilderness for the children of Israel was to look at the bronze serpent that Moses has made, so the only way for sinners like us to be healed of our sin, to be delivered from death and judgment, is if we look in faith to the Jesus who hangs on the cross. The incarnation was the only way we could be saved. Our great dilemma, as you know, is that we are sinners and we owe God because of our sin a great debt. A debt that is more than any man could pay. In fact, only an infinite God could make a sufficient offering. And so Jesus had to come. But only a man could rightly bear the punishment for men. So Jesus had to come and take on flesh. So Jesus now is fully God and fully man. A mystery that no mere mortal will ever comprehend. And all of this is put forth by these simple words that God gave his only son. An unfathomable sacrifice. And upon this sacrifice depends fully our salvation. Remember, God is not obligated to send his son. Jesus was not obligated to lay aside his glory and humble himself and take on human flesh and suffer agony and grief on the cross. So why would God send his son? Why would Jesus go all the way to the cross? Love. This is the expression of God's love. God's love is proven to us, written in blood at the cross. You know, sometimes we we may struggle, some of us, to believe that God loves us, to believe that God is good. Friend, if you struggle with that, here is what you must do look to the manger and see that God gave his only son. And then look to the cross and see that God gave His only Son. And let that demonstration of love inform your understanding of God's heart towards you. This is the supreme act of love and ought to give us great assurance. Paul's logic in Romans chapter 8 argues from the greater to the lesser. He says in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That should give us profound, deep assurance to know that the God who would do this for me, who loved me to that degree, will surely love me at every lesser level. You see, if God did not love you, he would not have sent his son for you. If, God, if Christ did not love you, he would not have died in your place. So use this truth to banish every doubt from your heart and your mind. Refuse to entertain the whispers of the serpent who wants to say, God doesn't really love you. No, the Father loves us. Christ loves us. And this love has been expressed in the most costly sacrifice imaginable. God's love is a love that takes initiative, unprompted, out of his own good pleasure, And his love is also deeply and profoundly sacrificial. A third observation on the love of God is that love, God's love, desires our highest good. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And what is the purpose of this giving? What is the aim of this love? John writes that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. You see, love at its essence is a desire for the good of another. And I think we all know that practically. If you love your friend, you want the best for them. If you love your spouse or your kids, you want the best for them. If you love your parents, you want the best for them. So, what is the best of all possible things for a human being? What is the highest good that we could possibly experience? It's eternal life. We were made for relationship with God, we were made for worship, we were made to experience the joy of fellowship with our Maker. This is life. This is life as it was meant to be. This is life at its fullest and its best. This eternal life is more than just a measurement of time. Eternal life is not just life that doesn't stop. No, it is a quality of life. It's actually something that begins at our conversion, something we experience now, yet something that grows exponentially into eternity. And this is what Jesus speaks of when he he talks to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. This woman who was empty, this woman who was seeking, He says in John 4, 14, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. And this eternal life, Jesus tells us, is found in knowing God. It's found in trusting in Christ, being rightly related to our Lord. Jesus prays in John 17, verse 3, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This eternal life, this knowledge of God, this relationship with him through Christ, this springing up life that that overflows in joy and peace, this is what the Father desires to give us. He loves us in that way, so much so that he would give his only Son, This is what Jesus desires for us. So much so that he would go all the way to the cross. You see, apart from Christ, apart from the sacrifice of the Son of God, apart from faith in him, we perish. We perish. Jesus was given so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The word perish here in in this verse means more than simply to die. It has the idea of destruction and loss and the negation of whatever it is that it's being contrasted with. And here, it is set opposite to eternal life. So if eternal life means more than just being alive, but also includes the full experience of all of God's good intentions for humanity, including perfect fellowship with him and the enjoyment of worship in his presence, unhindered by sin and death for eternity. If that's what eternal life means, then to perish here means more than just death. It is death, but it is also the tragic loss of all that God intended to give us. But God looked on the world that he had made. He looked upon the people in this world, and he desired to pour out his goodness. He desired that we would know him, And and that we would be rescued from our sin and the judgment that it brings. And that we would experience eternal life. This is the goal, the aim, the purpose of God's love. To provide eternal life for all who believe in Him. And this eternal life is the best and highest of all good gifts. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son... That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The sending of Jesus, the giving of the Son, is the supreme act of love. It shows us a God who takes initiative. He moves towards us. A God who makes the ultimate sacrifice, giving his only Son. And a God whose aim is to give us eternal life. For many people, these truths are familiar, especially for the Sunday morning crowd that comes every week. We know this, but it is imperative, friend, that we believe it and that we rightly respond to this truth. And so I have three exhortations for you this morning. First of all, I want to urge you, do not take this love for granted. Do not ever allow your heart to get to the place where you start to feel as if God owes it to us to love us that way. As if, well, of course he loves us. That's his job, right? That's God's job is to love me because God is love. No, such thinking is presumptuous. It is ignorant at best. It is arrogant at worst. You know, there's a lot of talk about privilege today in our society. What constitutes privilege and who has what privileges? Listen, to be loved by God is the greatest privilege. You may be poor Financially, you may be disadvantaged. You may be a minority in every sense of the word in this world. But to be loved by God means life. It means eternal life. And all other privileges, all other advantages, all other blessings pale in comparison to life, to the love of God. But you'll only recognize this and value this if you realize that God is not obligated to love us. It's not a right. It is a privilege. It is a gift. Not everyone is loved by God to this degree. Not all are chosen. Not all are adopted. Not all are given eternal life. But believer, if you know Christ, you are. You are. And we must not ever take that for granted. I also want to urge us this morning... I want to urge, especially those of us who love theology, who love doctrine, do not forget God's love. Because there's some people in our world today, and even those within the broader church, who deify love rather than deifying, recognizing the deity of God, the supremacy of Christ. Because some deify love and they want to, and they assume that God is obligated to love us, a lot of us have this strong desire to push back against that kind of thinking. And to bring the avalanche of Bible verses to the table that show that God is holy and God is righteous and God is sovereign and God does all things for his own glory. And God has a great wrath that is stored up for the day of judgment. And we should bring those Bible verses to the table. But in doing so, we dare not misrepresent God and minimize his glory by downplaying his love. That's not the answer. That's not the solution. There ought to be no tension for us between the righteousness and the holiness and the wrath of God and the love of God because there's no conflict within the nature of God. His divine attributes are not parts of His nature. No, God is 100% loving. He's 100% holy. He's 100% righteous. And all of His divine attributes are at every moment in perfect harmony. This means that his love is a holy love. His love is a righteous love. And he expresses his love sovereignly and for his glory. There's no tension here. Yes, God's ultimate motive is his own glory, first and foremost. And I'll die on that hill. I believe that with all my heart. But in his immeasurable grace, listen, it pleased Him to show love to us. He loves us because He wants to, because He likes to, because it brings Him glory. So listen, if we minimize the love of God, if we downplay it and we explain it away until it is no longer actually love, then we are diminishing the glory of God. So if your goal, as someone who prizes truth, wants God to be rightly known, wants the doctrine to be accurate, and that should be everyone's goal, by the way, If that's our goal, then we ought to be first in line to celebrate and worship him for all that he is and all that he does, including his perfect love. Like the psalmist says, our constant refrain ought to be, praise the Lord for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. That is the song of the redeemed. You know, we've talked a lot about worship this month, and we should, as we consider the incarnation, the coming of Jesus, as we sang this morning, come and worship, come and worship, worship Christ, the newborn King. That is our first and our constant and our final response to God's love. We'll be doing that for eternity. But I also want to close with this. We need to remember that while God's love is for you personally, believer, it is for you individually God's love is also bigger than that. God's love is for the world. And let me ask you this. How is the world to know about the the love of God? How is the world to know that God gave his only son? How is the world to know that eternal life is found in looking to Jesus, the one who is lifted, lifted up and trusting in him alone, in order to receive eternal life. They're only going to know if we tell them. So yes, we are called to worship the newborn king, but we're also called to go and to spread the word. Who have you told about the love of God recently? It's a good question we should ask ourselves. When was the last time you explained how in God's love he sent his son to the cross? When was the last time you shared with someone that God's love has made it possible for sinners like us to experience eternal life? You see, God's love is not meant to terminate in our hearts. Our hearts should not be dead-end streets, one-way streets. No, God's love is meant to, th- to flow through us and into a world that is currently lost and blind and enslaved and in need of the gospel. A world that will perish if they do not believe. The fact is, we don't know who God has sovereignly chosen to pour his love upon. We just know that the same sovereign God who loves us and has chosen to save us, he also chooses to use our prayers and our preaching and our friendships and our conversations and our witness as the means by which he will bring about his plan to save other sinners other sinners whom he loves with the same love that he loves us. You know, the Jews in Jesus' day were shocked to hear that the kingdom of God was bigger than Israel. These were explosive words in the Jewish context to hear that God so loved the world, not just Israel, that he gave his only son. They were shocked to hear that God's plan of redemption included Gentiles. We need to make sure we remember that God's plan for redemption is bigger than the people sitting in this room today. God loves the world. And as he told Paul when he was in Corinth, he has many people in this city. And our job is to go and find them, to tell them of the love of God, to tell them the good news that the Son of God suffered and died and rose again and eternal life is found in looking to him. We get to tell them about the love of God and the sacrifice of Christ so that as many, the way that Acts puts it, as many as are appointed eternal life may believe. So yes, worship Christ, the newborn king, but also go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. Go tell them that Jesus Christ is born. Can we sing that one? I don't know if you have the chords for that one. I'm just kidding. Do your other song. That's kind of a difficult one. But, but that is what we do with this love, okay? We, we worship God We rejoice in it, but we tell the world. We tell the world. The coming of Jesus into the world was the supreme act of love. And my prayer for us this morning is that this love would be seen, that it would be embraced by faith, and that the gift of eternal life would be the fuel for our worship and our obedience. Our obedience to this God, this God who is love, and this God who has loved us and has demonstrated that love in the giving of his son. What a perfect time of year to remember that, to celebrate that. This Christmas, let's keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. Let's not forget God's love. Let's not minimize it at all, but rather magnify it, that he might receive the glory that is due his name. Let's pray together. Lord, there is... A difficulty for us to even comprehend what it means that the triune God would love fallible people like us. There's challenges for us to understand the mystery of how God could become man. How the Father could give the Son. How there is one God who exists in three persons. Lord, all of this is marvelous and beautiful and glorious and it draws out, it should draw out humility and worship from us. Father, I pray that you would help us to rightly understand your love and that you would produce in us the right response, a heart of worship. That You would produce peace and joy and comfort in our hearts when we consider how we have been loved by you. Lord, assure our hearts this morning that you who did not withhold from us your Son will surely also give us all things that you have promised. Lord, we know that the eternal life that we taste now is going to exponentially grow into eternity. That our joy will be full. That our eternal life and the resurrection will be abundant. Untainted by sin and death and grief, every tear wiped away, all sorrows banished. God, this is all such a gift. Given to us, not because you were obligated to, but because you wanted to bless us, because you love us you took initiative to seek us, to come rescue us, to lay down your life for us, to give us eternal life. For that, we thank you. We praise you. God, forgive us for keeping this light under a bushel, for not telling all who will listen about this good news. Lord, I pray that you would charge us up today. Give us an eagerness and an excitement to tell the world about this loving God and what he has done. Lord, we know that there are sinners who are lost. There are people who are spiritually blind who live in our community. And some among them are destined for eternal life. Lord, I pray that you would use us to effectively proclaim the gospel to them, that they might join us in worshiping Christ, the newborn King. We pray all this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.